Today is the 50th anniversary of the first Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we are glad to rejoice in God's goodness over this past year, uh, the developments there. In light of what was going on in the United States in that regard over the last 50 years, we also can take note that it was back in the 1970s that China's communist government decided that population was getting out of hand and they uh, began restricting population growth. Ten years later, they... uh, They had instituted a one-child policy, which actually was written into their constitution. In order to carry that out, it required an intensive propaganda campaign because the population needed to be retrained in their thinking about children. Besides that, families also faced forced contraception, forced abortion, forced sterilization, and violators received stiff fines and diminished career opportunities. By 2015, however, the leaders realized that population control had been too effective And they began removing all childbirth restrictions. There are no childbirth restrictions in China right now. Uh, Just the opposite. Now the uh, efforts to diminish the population are all trying to encourage more families to have babies. Despite that complete reversal, a report was issued just last week that showed that China's population continues to be in decline. They lost over a million people in population last year, and that's in spite of all of these efforts. So what's going on? Why aren't the Chinese people having more babies now that they are allowed to do so and even given incentives to do so? One reason seems to be that over the last 50 years, Chinese people have become accustomed to the increased income as a result of reduced family obligations. That's become part of their culture now. The reality is that Through all of that effort for all of those years, the current generation of people has been successfully retrained and hardened against having children. Hardened by all that they have experienced, all that they were told. Well, don't blame the people for that. A fault lies squarely with the leaders who somehow thought this would be a good idea. They were exercising tyranny through authority. 
That's the same charge exercising tyranny through authority that is also leveled against God himself. Against God and his role of salvation, the very role we saw Romans 9 described for us last week in that passage. Now comes an objection, an accusation against God. That accusation is, well, if God hardens the hearts of some people, and as a result of that, they uh, persist in sin, and, uh, uh, well, then how is it right for God to then punish them? Who's really to blame for the path that they are on? Well, that's an important uh, objection. That's an important theological dilemma. And it needs a thorough biblical answer. Paul is going to provide that, but not yet. Because behind that attitude, behind that statement, there is an attitude against God that Paul elevates to the higher priority. That is what he has to deal with first. Uh, An attitude of of resentment against God's authority. Uh, An attitude of resentment against God's plan. This more urgent issue is people complaining about aspects of God's sovereignty that results in things happening in this world, things happening in our lives that, to admit it frankly, we don't like. We don't understand why it has to be this way. Why can't my life be better? Why can't my circumstances be brighter? You see, we're all tempted here. We would not level the accusation against God that this passage before us now in Romans 9, we're looking this morning at Romans 9, 19 through 29. We wouldn't issue that charge, but we are guilty of that attitude. The attitude of complaining about the circumstances that God's will is ultimately responsible for. So our passage today in Romans 9 says that all such murmurings, it's time for them to stop. We are missing a huge truth in Scripture that Paul presents to us in this passage designed to correct that wrong attitude, whether it is expressed or just silently on the inside complaining against God's will is sin. The message here then is that in fulfilling and following and pursuing his will, God is actually following his gracious plan. His will is one of grace and goodness. We need to understand how that works and what that looks like. And then we need to make a change. And that change is to humbly submit to him. 
to acknowledge that the right attitude, the only acceptable attitude to a sovereign, gracious God is to submit to him. Paul introduces the objection uh, in verse 19, as he has been doing throughout this chapter to this point. He teaches a truth and then anticipates that somebody is going to have a problem with what he just said. And so he voices that problem. He does that again here. There is a a hypothetical uh, debater that Paul is uh, presenting here, and, and he, he says what that debater would say. So verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Again, this is responding, just look up to verse 18. It's responding to the last thing Paul said in verse 18. So, God, so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault with the person with the hardened heart? For who can resist his will? In other words, where does the real blame belong? This objector is suggesting it really is God's fault, isn't it? Paul's answer, of course, is that God is sovereignly fulfilling his plan, and that is his right. In fact, if we properly understood the sovereignty of God, we would not choose it to be any other way. That is the only way we know things are going to turn out right. It's the only way we can know that we aren't messing things up because God is still following his plan no matter what people do. And the Lord is right to to reject all such challenges as verse 19 voices. He is right to reject all complaints against his sovereign will. And so Paul responds in verse 20 by saying, uh, to really lay out the attitude problem behind the accusation, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What's going on here? A mere human being is trying to instruct and, and, to, uh, and to correct the Lord of all? That's a really strange circumstance. What a position to adopt. Who would dare? The reality is we all would. Every complaint is just such a dare against God. And the Lord has the right to reject such a challenge. He is sovereign over creation. He rightfully controls it all. He has the right to direct his creatures. People are part of his creation. So verse 21, uh, excuse me, verse 20, 
uh, to finish that verse. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Well, put in those terms, they can understand. Yes, there's no right for us to tell God or to challenge his decisions. Why did you make me like this? Why did you make my life unfold like this? Why are my circumstances as they are right now? We have no right. It is sinful for us to so challenge God. And so verse 21 Paul asserts by pursuing the imagery of a potter and the clay. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course, these are all uh, a sequence of rhetorical questions. Of course, the answer is, yes, he has that right. Yes, the potter, and yes, God has that kind of right over all of his creation, including all of his creatures. It is arrogance on our part to think otherwise. We've all come from the same lump. That imagery, the lump there, representing all that God has to work with in this world. I don't think the lump is referring to God's original creation of people. Uh, The lump here is what he has to work with, with the people currently on the earth right now. That we're all from the same lump means we all have the same sinful nature. We all think of ourselves as being the most important. We all are selfishly striving to please ourselves as being the highest good. And those are wrong wrong perspectives. That's the lump we come from. And for God to have nothing to work with but sinful human beings that he can direct some in one way and others in another way, all of it to orchestrate together to accomplish his purpose. He's got that right. He is sovereign over creation. But moving from the realm of creation and what we can learn from that imagery of the potter and the clay Now he moves more into the realm of the problem where this all started, and that is he is sovereign over salvation as well. That's what Paul's been asserting in the previous verses of this chapter. He is sovereign over salvation. So verse 22, uh, here's an element of God's grace, the Lord restrains his punishment for sin. There actually ought to be no people alive on the earth right now if God was doing what people deserve. People sin. Sin deserves eternal punishment. If we are getting what we deserve, we would all be in hell right now. 
there'd be nobody left because there are no exceptions. But that we are not currently experiencing what we deserve. That nobody alive right now is experiencing what they deserve. Uh, Paul is expressing in verse 22. He says, what if God, and this is not hypothetical, this is reality he's describing. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, both of those are legitimate, to show his wrath against sin and to demonstrate his power, what if in order to accomplish that, he has endured with much patience? That word translated patience means with long suffering. You're not supposed to say that word very fast. With long suffering, God has graciously let people continue in their rebellion against him. He has an amazing degree of patience with sin. And that is because he desires to show his wrath and to make known his power. That is why he is still currently showing that long-suffering and withholding his punishment. He's not canceling his punishment for sin, but he is withholding it. For year after year after year, in the, every instance where somebody is, is following a course of rebellion against him. And so although the course of those years, unbelievers begin to think that maybe there is no God. Otherwise, how am I getting away with this? I'm flaunting his authority day after day after day and nothing happens. They are misinterpreting the patience of God. The Lord restrains his punishment for sin. Let's continue verse 22. To show his wrath, because he desires to show his wrath and to make known his power, he has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That word prepared is interesting. Mark uses that word to describe something going on beside the Sea of Galilee one day. Christ was in the process of selecting disciples, and he comes across uh, two men in a boat preparing their nets. Preparing, but the translation at that point says mending their nets. But the same word Paul uses here. Uh, the reason I point that out is that those, uh, those nets were not coming into being at that moment. They were not making nets. They were taking existing nets that had been damaged through use and were preparing them to accomplish their coming purpose, the purpose of the fishermen to catch more fish, which means, of course, you have to patch the holes. So that's what the word means. It's, it's, making, it's, it's 
preparing something that is already in existence. And so in this case, this also is not referring directly to God's creation of a person, but to God's use of a person, of any person, with what he already has to work with. What's he working with? A sinful human being. Somebody in rebellion against him. That individual, it says, is prepared for something. Prepared for the very destruction that that individual deserves. Now, it is uh, quite common for that phraseology in the hands of theologians to, uh, to, some, to mean that God destines people for destruction. Uh, and, and they have a word for this. They call it the doctrine of, of uh, retribution. Somehow that doesn't sound like the right word. Am I on the right word there? Doctrine of, begins with R. Maybe that's the right one, but it doesn't sound right to me right now. It's going to be something like that. Anybody got a word better than that? You write it. Reprobation is the word. Yes, yeah, starts with the right letter, ends with the right letter. <laughs> the doctrine of reprobation says that God looks at one person and says, you're going to end up in heaven. And he looks at another person and says, you are going to end up in hell. And it has nothing to do with what those people have done or will ever do. Now, I'd like to point out a subtlety here. A subtlety of phraseology, but it's one in which Scripture is consistent. When addressing this aspect of God's gracious choice, it's using the passive voice. I don't want to make too big a deal of that because the distinction between a, an active voice, in this case, God does something, and a passive voice that says something was done without directly saying who was the doer of it. That distinction is subtle. But that Scripture is consistent, and we're going to see the contrast to this in the next verse I think means it's deliberate. Well, who else besides God could be doing the reprobation here? There is no answer to that. There isn't any other candidate. But my point is that Scripture consistently chooses not to directly attribute that to God. It's like there's a degree of reserve here. I... The Holy Spirit saying here, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to go that far. I don't want to say it that clearly. There is a deliberate ambiguity going on here that ought to make theologians pause. Where Scripture is hesitant. I think it is unwise for theologians to be blatant. And so I think there's the place where we need to stop. I I don't have anything more to say about that other than let's just choose to follow the delicacy 
of biblical terminology here. And we won't even say God reprobates people. That's what Scripture chooses not to say directly. Let's go on to the other side of this in verse 23. While the Lord restrains his punishment for sin, and that's an act of his grace, he gives time. He is also providing an abundance of grace. Verse 23, while he's doing what he says in verse 22, Paul says that all of that is in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Which he has prepared. Same word as we saw in verse 22, but in this case, he switches from the passive to the active. No hesitation to say that God's gracious choice, I choose you to be mine. No hesitation to attribute that directly to God. God does that. The Lord provides this abundance of grace. In other words, he is far from being an unjust tyrant. God is not just in charge and just distributing uh, his plan just on its whim. This is not arbitrary. It's all motivated by his grace, and it all communicates that grace. The ultimate purpose, even of the long-suffering of verse 22, is to show mercy that leads to glory. There's God's plan. And these vessels of mercy, who deserve that mercy no more than the vessels of destruction. There's no credit here uh, toward these vessels. It's just God's choice. And it's to make known the riches of his glory. And it seems to be an indication here that the contrast between the first vessels in verse 22 and these vessels in verse 23, that the contrast is designed to heighten our appreciation for the riches of his grace. Everybody was getting it. Wouldn't seem to be such a great thing. But that by God's grace, you are a recipient of his mercy, knowing that there are others who are not. Wow, what do I owe this God? He didn't pick me because I was better. He picked me because because he is gracious. Okay, that is the God this passage calls upon us to submit to. Submit to his plan, even the parts that you don't like. After the services last Sunday morning, Jan and I were going out this door, uh, going to our car, and just about that time around the back, 
and they just turned the corner right then was uh, Josh and Rebecca's vehicle. So they stopped a moment and uh, put down the windows on that side. Uh, We hadn't talked to them uh, that morning, just the way it worked out. Perhaps a little more significantly, we hadn't had any interchange with our granddaughter. So as her window went down and we said hi, Tessa began to try to get out. I mean, when you see grandparents, you want to go to them. So she started straining against this car seat, which was firmly buckled, and she wasn't making any progress. And then her parents said with a firm voice, no, Tessa, you can't get out. And that's when the tears started. Tears I could well understand. Tears I was restraining myself. (laughs) And she didn't get it. There was disappointment in those tears. But you know, there was something else. There was rebellion there. A rebellion that did not understand. A rebellion that did not like the circumstance. But it's a rebellion that she has to learn to stop. It's a complaint against those in authority. She needs to learn, and this is one of the chief challenges of every parent, to teach their children that their resistance, their rebellion, must stop and replace that with a willing submission to the stronger, higher authority. If they don't learn to submit to parents, how will they ever learn to submit to God? Because God's decisions don't get any easier than those of parents during childhood. Someday she'll come to understand that the parents that seemed so uncaring last Sunday were actually focused on her good. They were intent on, every parent knows the challenge of a Sunday schedule for a young child. And they were focused on getting her home and getting her lunch, which Tessa was going to appreciate greatly when it arrived and then get on to her nap, which she would also have appreciated. But at that moment, complaint. That's what has to stop in our lives. It's at the moment that I don't like this. To transfer that by God's grace to, oh, but this is my gracious, loving God deciding to do this right now. It's okay, God. I submit to you. You know, every day we're supposed to include in prayer the prayer, your will be done. 
Pray that every day, but then humbly submit to what that will turns out to be for you that day. That can require accepting the restraints of duty. I'd like to do this, but I have to do this. Okay, that's part of God's plan. It means accepting the limitations of weakness, of sickness, of advancing age. Are all of those together? Because this is your plan, oh gracious God. It means the accepting the delay of intense desires. Because that delay is God's plan. The English Standard Version shows an ongoing sentence in going from verse 23 to 24, but uh, there are many people that think that verse 24 is actually a transition to a new paragraph. It's a connected paragraph, closely connected, but what Paul is doing beginning in verse 24 is going all the way back to the original problem of chapter 9, which was... All these promises God gave to the Jewish people, but look around. Not very many are coming to Christ. The very Savior designed for them, and they're not coming. What's going on? Has God's word failed? Well, now he comes back to finally answer that question. He's already told us, no, God's word has not failed Now he completes that thought in verses 24 to 29 that God is mercifully fulfilling his plan. He does so sovereignly. At the same time, he's doing so mercifully. And that means in verse 24 that he is extending mercy to the Gentiles. Of all people, the Gentiles... And Paul rejoices in this. In verse 24, he says that these vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, who's he talking about here? And he says, it's us. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, Paul wants to show that this has been God's plan all along. This is not a shift. This is not God saying, well, it turns out my people don't want it, so I'll go to the Gentiles instead. It's what it looks like to us, but it was always God's plan. And here's his evidence for that. He has a couple of quotations from the book of Hosea. And so he focuses first on the role of Gentiles in in God's current plan. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, and we're to be thinking the Gentiles here, I will call my people. It's us. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. That's the God who's following this plan. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. 
All right, so God's revealed this in the past. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. Hosea, let's go back to Hosea. We don't have time to do that right now, but you're going to see the same thing that Paul is saying here. It's the same wording. But what group of people did Hosea have in mind? Well, as Hosea is taking this down from the Holy Spirit, there's no question. He's thinking, this is Israel. This is the Jewish people. Because in that day, there were many in the Jewish nation that were in rebellion against God. And God was saying to them, you are not my people. But there's coming a time where he's going to change that. And he's going to start saying again, you are my people. Hosea says, or he's thinking, this is Israel. And he was right. But Paul is telling us now that in God's mind all along, it also includes the Gentiles. Peter agrees. First Peter chapter 2, he quotes this very same passage, indicating he's describing the church. The church has Jews in it. The church also has Gentiles, and a lot of Gentiles. And that was a surprise for people that only had the Old Testament. It was a plan that he had concealed, but after all, there it is. He's extending mercy to Gentiles. That's an amazing thing that should thrill every believing Gentile today. But verses 27 to 29, he now turns to quotations from Isaiah, and he says, he's extending mercy to Israel too. And now you see how this ties back to the beginning of this chapter. How is he extending mercy to Israel? Seems like they're almost all on the outside of his plan. Oh no, that's a misunderstanding. He's extending mercy to Israel as well, and here's how it works. Verses 27 to 28, the salvation of a remnant. Right now, a few Jews getting saved. Their salvation is the result of God's grace. God extending mercy to Israel, the salvation of a remnant, shows how gracious he is. And this confirms Paul's point going all the way back to verse 6. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, how many Jews exist in the world right now? Only a remnant of them will be saved. That's the reality. But that there is a remnant that some Jewish people, praise God, see Christ as the promised Messiah and have accepted him. But why is it only a remnant? Verse 28 explains, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So it's fascinating. It's talking about God's judgment. He is still in the business of judging sin, which means he still has to judge unbelieving Jews. But the phraseology here, will carry out his sentence, literally says this, that God, that the Lord 
will do his word. He'll fulfill his word. He is following his plan, and none of it will fail. Despite the fact that the vast majority of Jewish people are in rebellion against God, there's still a remnant, and that is evidence of his grace. Finally, in verse 29, the survival of the nation is by his grace. It says, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's the reality. They'd be all gone, but it's not going to happen. Because of God's grace, the nation of Israel is going to survive. There will be a nation of Israel in the future in God's plan. They'll be at the heart of God's plan. His preservation of seed will successfully avert complete annihilation. That's his guarantee. That's his grace. Speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, after a three-year COVID break, the team of archaeologists that have for the last 16 years been excavating the city of Sodom, this is located in the country of Jordan, they arrived back at the site to resume their work just this last week. Their first initial survey, I get their daily updates. This is a fascinating development. Their first uh, day back, they took a quick survey of uh, the whole area. And it's a vast uh, area. It's a, it was a huge city in the ancient world. And they realized that was, wasn't unexpected, that in those three years, looters had come. And they had dug a pit and were looking for artifacts that they could sell in the black market. All right. Yeah, that's what happens. They regret this. This is terrible. There's damage that they do. It's a real disappointment. Sometimes it's a disaster. But on this occasion, just yesterday, they examined that pit and, oh, look what that shows. And look how this connects over here. And here are the words of the archaeological um, leader. Quote, The night digger hole, also known as looter pit, has provided us the opportunity to get the best look at the upper city. It's in two levels. The upper city uh, fortifications, the best look we've ever seen. As the cleaning proceeded, that is, they're cleaning up what mess was left, it became apparent that there were many elements come together in this one location that we never would have tackled had it not been for our nocturnal friends. We have come to see this kind of site damage in the past, but in this particular case, they actually did us a favor. And he closes by saying, Thank you, Lord. You see, God is not just sovereignly ordering your life. He is graciously ordering your life. 
And what might be very disappointing or even look like a disaster at the moment, look what happened. Look what, I've, look what I'm left with. In every instance, will ultimately point to a gracious God. Our challenge is to interpret what looks like disaster as a gracious God at work. Doing what is right. Doing what is best. Doing what is best for me. There's the right interpretation. Humble submission to God. Boy, that's really tough when it comes right down to day-by-day experiences. But you know, God is willing to help. He has grace for that too. He can help you respond to his grace. Yes, yes, we need that. What we need to do is ask him for it. God, would you help me change my attitude toward the hardships of my life? Let's bow for prayer and ask him to do that in your heart right now. Father, thank you that you are in control. Understood in the light of this passage of Scripture, Father, we would have it no other way. What a blessing to know that you don't just orchestrate this world sovereignly, you do so graciously. We are all the recipients of that grace. Father, we pray then for your help that as your plan unfolds, your gracious, sovereign plan unfolds each new day. Father, would you help change our resentment, our discouragement? Would you change it to joyful submission, a humble submission that says, I know you know what's best. Father, we long for that degree of victory. For Jesus' sake, we pray, amen.